Let's pray. Lord, you and you alone, you're the only one who can do this, this thing that I'm about to do. Requires absolute, total, and full dependence on the power of your Holy Spirit to speak. It requires total and absolute and full dependence on your Holy Spirit to receive the words you say into the minds and the hearts and the souls of those listening. Only you can truly transform lives. And only your word is the source. So this morning, as I take your words and I scoop them out of your text and lay them before your people, we not only pray that the meaning of your word would be clearly communicated, but we pray that hearts and minds would be eager to receive what you have for us today so that we can live lives that honor you. And for all that to be done, it must be you. Your word tells us that if we obey and trust, you will act. So we trust you, and in any ways that we don't trust you, where our faith lacks Fill it up. Bridge the gap so that our trust is full so that you would act. So this morning, Lord, do your thing. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come upon a text today that brings up something we've already covered, which is prayer. Yet, prayer is not really the heartbeat of this text. Rather, it is who prays that Paul is emphasizing. And by establishing who is to pray, he also implies from the context that what that person who's doing the praying should be like, which will reveal God's intended order for leadership in the church, which is ultimately the point of these texts. And all of that is so that the prayers of the church are met with fulfillment by God. So if we want our prayers to be answered, it is vital that we as a body follow God's structure for leadership in the church and that as we follow his structure for leadership in the church, it's going to require that each and every one of us, no one in this room is exempt from this, each and every one of us has to learn the importance of submitting to our appointed authorities in life. Everybody submits to somebody. Even Christ submitted. So, He's our example, and we all have that role. And what I want to do is kind of present this text to you, unravel it, so that you can see what's really going on here as we move forward and start talking about uh, sort of a, a, a transition of things into male and female roles in the church, uh, male leadership in the church, um, and submission by both men and women and to whom they submit. And all of that's going to take four, five, six weeks. So buckle up. It's going to be good though because it's going to help us as a body. Uh, I'll say it like this. I don't believe that the things that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks are a fundamental problem in our church. But it is fundamentally important that everyone in the church is on board with these realities because these realities are reflected in your home. And, and, and what's reflected in your home is going to show up in the body of Christ. So I care about how you parent your children. I care about how you love your wife. I care about how you submit to your husband. I care about those things because whatever you do at home, you're going to do here. 
However you treat your wife, that's eventually how you're going to treat me or that person or this person. So this is fundamentally important. And the other reality is that things like the structure of leadership in the church, I mean, that is determined by the elders in your church as we look at scripture and say, this is what the Bible tells us the church should be structured like. And so the elders implement that structure Well, you could come to this church and not know any of that. You could come to this church and we could say, hey, we got uh, male leaders, male elders only. We call them elders. We don't call them deacons. We call them elders. That's what scripture, you know, whatever thing we say to you. And you'd be like, cool, great, whatever. And some people could walk into a church and we could be like, hey, we have all female leaders in the church. And that same person would be like, okay, great, whatever. But I don't think that's okay. We're all on board with growing, Right? And part of our growth is understanding sound doctrine, which is the heartbeat of 1 Timothy. That's really what Paul's getting to is sound doctrine. And part of sound doctrine includes the entire church, not just, not just being at a church where there's proper biblical authorities and we're following the biblical mandates for what church leadership looks like, but that you go to that church, understand why they do it as you're taught it from Scripture and you are on board with it and support it so that you can be part of us living it. And, it, and the other aspect of that is wherever doctrine is faulty, that is going to have tentacles in other areas of your life. So you can't just exclude, say, church leadership and say, well, I'm way off on church leadership, but everything else in my life is fine. It's like, no, I really doubt it. If you're off on church leadership, then you're probably, it's infecting some other part of your life somehow. Because we are not compartmentalized human beings. We are an interwoven organism that is tainted by sin. And so we have to address all of these doctrines with accuracy. And we have to address many of the, well, all the doctrines, but many doctrines, which we get to do in First Timothy, so that the totality and the fullness of our life becomes more and more like Christ. So we get to verse seven and Paul writes, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the first thing we need to do is we need to put this verse in its context, uh, which begins with understanding the importance of um, there's this coordinating conjunction. We talked about this on Wednesday night, and I said, well, there's a coordinating conjunction in this text, and the women who go to Thursday night women's Bible study are studying a book by uh, uh, Jen Wilkin. Christian, I'm so glad you're back, man. (laughs) Um, he's giving me the nod like you got it right because I didn't think I had it right. Uh, so they were studying that and Jen Wilkin calls these things transitional words, which it is essentially a transitional word. And that's just a little easier to remember than having to think, and, think of and know all these grammatical terms. But the reason I want to call it a coordinating conjunction is because it's not just a transition. This little phrase at the beginning when he says for this, that is that is, those, are, those two words create a connection between these texts. And what it does is it reveals that verse 7 is dependent on verses 3 through 6 that we just covered when we talked about the gospel. So the question is, what does this coordinating conjunction mean when he says, for this? What is the this? And the this refers back to verses 3 through 6, which is the mediating work of Christ to pay the ransom for our sins. That is the this. So it is for that, or a simpler term would be the gospel. So for the gospel, Paul was appointed a preacher and apostle. Now, Paul's apostleship was constantly under fire. And we see, like, throughout his 13 letters to the churches, he's often defending his apostleship because his opponents, who were mostly uh, false preaching Jews, were constantly attempting to persuade believers to follow the law of Moses. And this, like these ferocious attacks from his opponents is why Paul says here, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. Now, the Greek word for preacher here means to herald 
or to proclaim, to speak publicly. We know Paul's a preacher because apart from his statement here that he says, I was appointed a preacher. We also have evidence in other places in scripture that Paul publicly proclaimed and heralded the gospel. And the validity of his gospel message also confirmed his apostleship. So Paul's saying, I'm a preacher and I'm an apostle. And we see throughout scripture confirmation of what he preaches. The gospel that he has is correct. And the correctness of his gospel validates his calling as an apostle. Specifically to the Gentiles. And that validity of his apostleship through the gospel comes in at least two ways. Probably more. I'm just going to give you two. One form of validity of Paul's gospel and his apostleship to Gentiles is Jesus himself. Jesus himself appointed Paul. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says about the gospel he preaches, he says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the resurrected Christ himself comes to Paul and taught Paul the gospel that he was to preach and that he was to preach it to the Gentiles. Now, Paul preaches to Jews too, but his ministry is to the Gentiles. And we see from Acts 13 that Peter's ministry was to the Jews and Paul's was to the non-Jews, but both men preached to both. But a majority of their ministry was either to the circumcised or the uncircumcised, as it says in Acts 13. In fact, even though Peter's ministry was mostly to Jews, Peter was the first one to preach to Gentiles when they believed in Acts 10. And then the Holy Spirit fell upon them and the whole church was like, whoa, 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 what are these Gentiles doing believing They're not Jews. They don't get the Messiah. And then Peter tells them, who are we to to stop what God did in us that he's doing in them? Who are we to intervene? And the church in Jerusalem was like, you're right. Amen. Gentiles can be saved too, confirmed by the church. And so that's kind of like the background of why Paul is specifically mentioning the Gentiles, because he's verifying not just his ministry to Gentiles, but that There's clarity now that this is a legit calling from God. So the second point of validation of Paul's gospel and his apostleship to the Gentiles is that the apostles themselves validated Paul's gospel. In Galatians 2, 7, Paul writes, when they, now the they are the the church leaders and apostles in Jerusalem, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, as Gentiles, verse 9, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Meaning, the church, the apostles, and the church leaders in Jerusalem approved of Paul's gospel, and not only did they validate his gospel, but they validated what Paul tells us here in 1 Timothy 2, 7, that he is a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And by saying in faith and truth, he's telling us that His preaching is effective. He's preaching truth and Gentiles are believing. The faith in Gentiles is happening because the power of the truth is at work. So let's put all this validation. Verse 7 kind of lays a groundwork for what comes next in verse 8. And then verse 8 is going to lay a groundwork for what comes next, verses 9 through 15. Which will then lay a groundwork... For what comes after that, chapter 3, where we talk about eldership. So all of this is just stacking on top of itself. And it kind of begins here in verse 7. And so you've got verses 1 through 2, prayer, verses 3 through 6, the gospel. And then Paul transitions in 7 to validate his ministry. So the question is, why is he validating his ministry? So let's put all of this validation of Paul from Paul about his apostolic ministry and his gospel preaching to the Gentiles into the context within this whole letter to Timothy. So remember, large context, the larger context of 1 Timothy is the emphasis on sound doctrine. And then the smaller context of chapter 2 is orderly and appropriate worship in a corporate setting, right? So verses 1 through 2, 
Corporate worship has to have prayer. And then he dove into all the elements of prayer and what that means. Uh, Verses 3 through 6. Corporate worship has to have the gospel. And now, as we'll see in verses 8 through 15, corporate worship of the church has to entail God-ordained male leadership in the church and God-honoring female submission in the church and Christ-exalting, God-glorifying Ephesians 5.21, everybody submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So all of those things are about order and worship because, and I've told you this before, but you can, you can come to worship God and say, you know, I'm not, I don't have everything right. Um, God doesn't care how I worship. He just cares about my heart. He just know. he just, all God cares about is that I want to worship. And it doesn't matter how I do it, as long as I want God. Well, the Israelites wanted to worship God in the desert. And so they made a, out of gold, a calf, a statue, golden calf. And what did God do? Punished him, disciplined him. God has parameters for what worship looks like, and we have to follow it in order for that worship to be sanctifying. We want to consecrate our worship. We want it to be biblical and Christ-centered and God-honoring. Is God honored when you worship him inappropriately but with the right heart? Well, I mean, in a sense, yeah, right? I mean, he cares about the condition of your heart when you worship him, even if you do it wrong. So if we pick a song on Sunday morning and the lyrics are totally unbiblical, but you're, and you're singing it with all your heart and you're not worried about the lyrics, man, that doesn't matter. I just love Jesus and I just want to sing and that's all I'm doing. Forget, it doesn't matter if the lyrics aren't good. Does that honor God? It, it does because in your heart, you really desire Jesus. That brings great honor to the Lord. But we want to refine how we worship so that it's more biblical so that God gets more glory, and you will be more satisfied. So then we take those lyrics down and we put up better lyrics, like we, like we were just talking about when we sang Magnificent, Marvelous, Matchless Love, because the way in which we worship is vitally important. And so if these elements, prayer and the gospel, and a, aren't in, in the corporate worship, then we become... Well, we kind of just become a social club is really what it is. And, and if this, the church isn't structured biblically with the right kind of eldership and leadership and everyone filling their appropriate roles the way they're supposed to, then it's going to create problems because we're not in order as we worship. And when I say as we worship, I don't just mean come to church on Sunday morning for an hour, hour and a half or however long we go. Um, and, and, and sit down and we'll make sure everything's in order and you just sing and that's your worship and you just listen to the sermon and that's your worship. That's not what worship is. That's part of worship. What we see in Romans 12, one is your entire life is your worship. And so the outpouring of the appropriate structure in the church will impact the way you think, live, feel, all of that. And you will carry that into your week into your home, into your job, into your relationships, into your entertainment, all of it. So it is massively and vitally important that we get it right. And we're going to preach, I'm going to preach on what is God's structured order for the church. And all of these elements, the prayer and the gospel and the God-ordained male leadership in the church, all of these elements are necessary for God-honoring corporate worship. And listen to this. Doing these things correctly is sound doctrine. And you can't do them correctly, which means you can't do sound doctrine unless you know sound doctrine. So, after Paul has taught us already the importance of sound doctrine, now he's giving us actual tangible, tangible and, and practical ways to practice Sound doctrine. So, what is the purpose of Paul sliding in this defense for his ministry as a preacher to the Gentiles? And what is the purpose of Paul validating himself as an apostle in verse 7? Why does he do that? 
The answer is in verse eight. Paul says, I desire then. Let's just stop there. The word then, what it does is it indicates to us that what he just said in verse seven is the basis for what he's going to say in verse eight. I told you it's a, it's a building, right? Paul's laying one foundational brick at a time for church structure and leadership. And it begins in verse seven by him attesting to his authority to tell the church what's what. So verse seven, because of the word then, verse seven is the basis for what he's gonna say in verse eight. And what he's going to say in verse eight is Paul's desire for the church as they gather corporately to worship. Who cares what Paul thinks? Who cares what Paul desires? What does it matter what Paul says? That's why verse seven's in there, because Paul's an apostle. He was appointed by the, our Savior himself and validated by the leaders of the church. So that means that what Paul says is not just what Paul wants, it's what God commands. Paul is writing on behalf of God. Every biblical author is writing on behalf of God. As 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And the word of God is the prophecy of God. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Meaning exactly what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. And so scripture then is the fulfillment of what Jesus promised his apostles in John 14, 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And the Holy Spirit fulfills that truth from Jesus as he speaks through and writes through the apostles to form the very word of God that we learn from today. That is why we care what Paul desires, because it is what God desires, and these are his words. So, what does God desire in the corporate worship of the church? Verse 8. That, in every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So let me just address this first these words in every place. So one thing that Paul knows is that the letters he writes are going to be circulated around the church. So Timothy's in Ephesus, and, and Paul knows that the church in Ephesus are going to read these words, are going to hear these words, and he also knows that this letter's going to get passed to Corinth and to Galatia and to Jerusalem and all over, which, which means that Paul is saying in every place that the church gathers corporately for worship. It doesn't matter which town you're in or which house you're in, and all the places where the body gathers to meet together in unity for the sake of magnifying the glory of the gospel and making and enjoying the presence of Christ with one another. In all those scenarios, it is vitally important that we do this. And what is the this? That men should pray. And you kind of stop there and you're like, prayer again? Didn't you just like, didn't we just talk about prayer like just a few verses ago? And now we're coming back to prayer. In fact, not only did he talk about prayer in verses one through two, but what he said about prayer in verses one through two was a lot. It was pretty satisfying, pretty fulfilling. I don't, I don't think we need a deeper, you know, dive into the importance and significance of prayer and the type of prayer. We just kind of covered it, right? Well, it almost seems sinful to say that, right? Like, like hey, let's not talk about prayer. Let's not... Let's not elevate the importance of prayer. That's, that just seems unbiblical. So I, and I don't, I know that Paul isn't minimizing the importance of prayer. What he's doing here is he is applying what he taught us in verses one through two. So it's an application of the commands earlier and it's an application of what prayer really is in the church and how that's tied to who's doing it. But in verse 8, there is a distinguishing word. Like, Paul does care about how we pray. 
just as much as he cares about that, we pray. But then in verse eight, we get this distinguishing word that when you put, when you put it within the context of the verses that come afterwards, tells us that this is about more than prayer. This is about roles. Now, the distinguishing word in verse eight is men. In every church gathering, men should pray. That does not mean women shouldn't pray. Paul does not clarify only men should pray. What he does is he emphasizes that men should pray. That men should pray. Why? Because as we'll see from the context of 8 through 15, the more prominent meaning of these verses is about the roles of men and women in the church, specifically the roles of men and women as they actively worship God together. So to state it more pragmatically, uh, like verses 8 through 15 tell us a few things. They tell us what men should do when the church gathers. What women should do when the church gathers. And what women should not do when the church gathers. And why women should not do what he says they should not do. Those are four important things that Paul's going to address within this context over the next few weeks. We will address what the women should do and should not do in the next couple of weeks. But for today's text, there's just this emphasis on men. Men should pray. And though this is placed within the context of male and female roles in the church, that does not mean that only men should pray. And it does not mean that women should not pray. It means, and this is really what it means, men should lead. That's what Paul's getting to. Because the most effective, and I shouldn't say most, actually, because I don't want to be superlative. uh, One of the most effective forms of leadership, whether you're a husband or a father or a pastor or an elder, is to pray. That's one of the most important things you can do as a leader. And if you're a leader and you're not doing it, you're not leading well. Prayer is the best one of the best. Acts of leadership because prayer is the most profound form or act of submission to God. Prayer says, I can't, I need you. I can't do it, I need you. I can't lead this church, I need you. I can't preach, I need you. I can't sing, I need you. I can't serve, I need you. If you don't help me, God, you'll leave me to myself. And if you leave me to myself, I'm going to make you look ugly. Because if I don't depend on you, me will come out. My sinful flesh will begin to reign. And we see this in Galatians chapter 5. Be filled with the Spirit and you will, not, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Which means if you're not filled with the Spirit, you're going to gratify the desires of the flesh. And the flesh will take over. And how do we then get filled with the Spirit? That's the question. And the answer is prayer, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus would retreat and be alone with the Father, and he would get filled with the Spirit as the Spirit himself would pour the love of God, whom is the Holy Spirit, into Christ. And Christ would be filled with the love of God because why? He's in the presence of his Father. We look at Jesus like 40 days in the wilderness praying? That's a long time. Jesus is like... I spent an eternity in his presence. 40 days is nothing. In fact, it's not enough. And we see Jesus behaving this way and talking this way constantly. Because what Jesus understands is in order to be filled with the Spirit, he needs to be present with God. And Jesus' life was filled with walking and preaching and teaching and condemning and rebuking and casting out demons and healing people. And everybody wanted to talk to Jesus. And he's defying the, the heretics. And he's fighting the Pharisees. And he's, and he's leading and discipling the apostles. And he's teaching the women how to behave. And he's telling the men what to act like. And he's just pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And we 
see in Mark chapter 5 that the woman touches his heel and it says Jesus sensing or, or realizing or knowing, I forget the exact word there, but, but realizing that the spirit had just been poured out of him. The spirit had just been drained out of him. He knew someone touched him and he turned around and said, who touched me? Which tells us that when Christ goes and does the ministry, when he heals and casts out demons and preaches the gospel or whatever, whatever he's doing, as he's doing it, he is emptying the Holy Spirit out of himself. And that's why he's like, okay, we just went from town to town. I'll be right back. <laughs> I'm going to go on the other side of the, the, the sea over there. I'll meet you guys over there. Oh, just kidding. I'm done praying. I'll meet you in the middle of the water and I'll be walking on it, right? Or he's like, I'm going to go retreat for 40 days because he needs to get filled. Why? Well, that doesn't make sense. He's God. He doesn't need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a man, fully and completely 100% man. He is just as, in his, in his ministry and life on earth, he is just as desperate for the Father's presence in the Spirit as you are. The difference is he failed at it never. And so it is massively important that we are filled with the Spirit so that, why so that? Where was I going with that? <laughs> it was good anyways, right? Okay, so... Leadership, men, we need to be praying because prayer, that was my point. Prayer is the means by which we get filled with the Spirit. And you cannot lead your family well without being filled. You cannot love your wife well. You cannot love your kids well. And this goes for everybody. This is not just men. This is everybody. Your relationships will break down. Your pleasures will become earthly and sinful. You will retract from the body of Christ. You will seek out the pleasures of the world. You will desire money and things. And I could go on and on with the effects of not being filled with the Spirit. And you begin to desire or to gratify the desires of the flesh. And you cannot be a man of God if that's your habit. You have to be a man of prayer. And I'm not just talking about praying on the way to work for five minutes. Like, by all means, don't skip that ever. Go to town, you know? Pray at all times. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Pray whenever you can. But you have to find time to be in the closet with God. You have to. Your family depends on it. You depend on it. Your church depends on it. Because you know what I don't want? I don't want you in the flesh. I don't want that. That sounds really like, well, that's not the gospel. Isn't the gospel all inclusive and loving? We accept everybody no matter where they're at. Absolutely. And that's not at all my point. Of course, I want you here. And if you're not feeling filled and you're not gratifying the desires of the flesh, then this is the place you should come to. But you should come to this place and say, I need prayer. Somebody help me. My marriage is falling apart. My kids don't listen to me. I don't know what to do. I hate my job. My boss is a jerk. I, I don't know what to do with my life. And I don't know where to go to church. And I don't know how to feel. And I've got all these things going on in my life. And I don't know what to do. And you come to the church. The church goes, whoa, 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 man, dude, we're going to pray with you. And we're going to encourage you every single day. I'm going to text you every day. Are you praying? Are you praying? And if you need to get together with me every day so we can pray together just so you pray, we'll do that. You need to be with God. The first and most important aspect of prayer is the presence of God. You ever just sit in a room? I remember this. <laughs> it's funny to me. It won't be funny to you because it's not a funny story as it's told, but it's a weird experience for me, okay? So I remember being a kid, and I was sitting in my room, and I'm sitting at a desk, 
And I was like, I used to have these sports pencils. So I had like all the pencils of like every NFL team and each pencil was, and I'd play these games and I'm like, oh yeah, the, the Green Bay Packers beat the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, and I'm playing this game. I'm super focused on this. I'm a kid, by the way, this isn't recently. And <laughs> just like, yeah, right. And so the, the door to my bedroom was like literally a 90 degree angle from where I was looking. It's right there. And I'm playing, and I'm playing, and all of a sudden, I just, this, you can feel it. There's just something changed. The room changed. There's a, a presence in the room, and I don't know what it is. And I look up, and my mom is just standing in the doorway watching me play. And I was like, ah! And I just freaked out. I'll never forget it. And she's like, I've been standing here for like two minutes. I'm like, I didn't notice. And so, you know, my, my, my point is that, you know, when, when you're in a room alone, and someone comes in that room, there's a, something changes. There's a, a presence. There's an adjustment of presence. The atmosphere changes. And you can feel there's someone here. That's what prayer is. Just, that's how it starts. You sit down and you, you just realize that like, God, you didn't just walk in this room. I did. You are always here. I'm the one who had to come into the room to feel and experience and just know that you're present. You're always with me. You repeat it over and over, God. Most repeated promise in Scripture to me is you will never leave me or forsake me. And that's where prayer begins, with the presence of God, just recognizing I'm in the room with God. And I could go on and on for what, what you do from that point on, but we already addressed that sort of a few weeks ago. But that's an important aspect in reality about prayer. And we have to be people of prayer because prayer is the best act of leadership because prayer is the most profound act of submission and dependence on God, which you need. All of us need it. But specifically in this text, the men need it because they are leading the church. So, husband, if you're not praying like that, it is affecting your family. And you might think you can manage it. You might think, oh, no, nah, it's, all, it's, all, it's all good. It's all good. It's not all good. There is an, there's an undercurrent of sin filling up and swirling and it's creating a whirlpool it's going to suck your family in if you don't get on prayer now. You don't see it. It's underneath the water. And here's what happens. You bring that to the church and you're going to bring us down with you. And the only way that we don't go down with you is if we're praying so that when you get sucked in by the desires of the flesh, the body of Christ, the hands of Jesus, reach down and pull you up and rescue you. Not because the church is the rescuer, but because the church is the body of the rescuer. So, we've got to be praying. It is the most profound act of leadership is to pray. Because it is, requires humility, and humility is a necessity for leadership. Godly leadership is Christ-like submission. And I say Christ-like intentionally because Jesus submitted to. In 1 Corinthians eleven three, it says, the head of Christ is God. He's talking about the Father. The head of Jesus is the Father. But Christ is God, so why does he submit to God? That doesn't make sense. How does God himself submit to God himself? Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 11 is not to discuss the nature of Jesus' deity. Jesus is fully God. Equal with God. And his point isn't to emphasize the nature of God. His point is to emphasize that despite having the same nature as his father, he still joyfully and faithfully fulfills his role, which is submission. So it is not about nature. It is about roles. I can't emphasize that enough. It is not about nature it is about roles, because if it's about nature, then every woman in the church has an argument for leadership. 
Every woman in the church has an argument against the authority of men in their lives. It's not about nature. Because in nature, we are equal. Both men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. We are, by nature, equal with each other just as much as we are different and distinct from one another. Meaning men are not better than women. Right? We all know that. We all agree to that. Men aren't better than women. And, I mean, and I, I, when I say that, I mean just kind of generally speaking. Because if we get specific, men are better than women at certain things. Just like women are better than men at certain things. Because there's differences. But in God's view, we are all made in his image and likeness. There is an equality between men and women in the sight of God. And in, in, in the fact that we are humans. With a similar nature. But men specifically are to lead for one reason and one reason only. Because God commands it. Now that's not a very satisfying answer. That's like, you know, when your parents say, because I said so. It's like, well, that's not a reason. It's a good enough reason for me, right? That almost feels like an unsatisfying answer. But here's the thing. Your parents should explain to you why they do what they do. God doesn't have to. But by his grace, he does. So he does explain to us why. And part of the reason is God commands us this way because God created us this way. This is the reason for creation being man and woman, male and female. He created man or men in a particular fashion so to be leaders. So it's not about equality. It's about unity in diversity and that diversity is a diversity of roles based on our diversity as people. And it requires that everyone fill their role. Just as Christ is equally God with the Father, yet he submits to the Father. So also women are equally human with men, but are to submit to men. Why? Because that is their God-given role. Now, I'll just say this as a caveat. And I mean this as respectfully as possible. Um, If this idea offends you, that offense that you feel is the curse of the fall that we see in Genesis 3.16. Because the curse that God gave the woman was a desire to steal the male role of authority. And it's most profound in marriage. And it's becoming more profound in the church. So, if that offends you, it is a worldview problem. It is a problem of not having a strong enough Biblical worldview, and to get to Paul's overall point in First Timothy, it is a product of not having sound doctrine. And so, Paul establishes the leadership of men in the church, and later he will establish the submission of women to men in the church as a display of the gospel. And it has to be a display of the gospel because it has to show God's love somehow. Which is why men who lead as dictators and slam their fist and point and direct and say, do as I say because I'm in charge and that kind of personality, mentality, that's not love. Who's going to follow that? That's not love. Love is humble. Love is patient and kind and you know what love is. We could, we could go on talking about what love is. And, and love should show up in the way a man leads his wife, in the way a man leads his children, in the way a man leads the church. And the reason that's important is because why would you ever expect a woman to submit to a man who does not love her well? I don't expect it. God expects it. Because if that's the case, God still commands the woman to submit, even if he's not loving. 
But from a human perspective, from kind of a pragmatic perspective, it's just this idea, this kind of reasonable understand that. Why would you, why would this woman even want to submit to you when you treat her like garbage? You know, that kind of, you don't love her well. Why would she submit? Why would you submit to the elders in your church if we don't love you well? And so spiritual abuse does take place in churches. And it hurts the gospel. And that's why it's massively important that the gospel is the premise for why women submit to men. It's not about, I'm a woman. Oh yeah, my church teaches that I'm a woman. I'm supposed to submit. That kind of like attitude of like reluctant submission That's not holy. And what that is coming from is it's coming from one of two places. Either that man who's leading you, that church leader who's leading you, is abusive to some degree or or not a healthy leader, and you're reluctant to submit to him. Or you're the sin problem, and you're reluctant to submit to him because that curse is at work. And you're not filled with the Spirit, and so it's hard to submit and follow because you have a gender issue in your mind that, oh, well, the, oh, the church is all about men and being powerful, power over women. That's not what the church is about. The church is about the gospel. And the gospel has ordered the structure of the church and the leadership of the church. The gospel. So women, don't, don't come with that, that kind of like disgruntled, reluctant attitude. Look at your role as my priority as a woman is to magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ specifically in magnifying a one particular aspect of Christ in that he, though equal with God, still submitted. No one in the history of the world has ever had a greater claim to, I don't have to submit than Jesus. And yet, joyfully, faithfully does so. Women, that's your call to your husband, to your church leaders, to any authority in your life. I mean, that's a reality for everybody. It's not just women. That's everybody submitting to their proper authorities. I'm speaking specifically to the women. If you think this is a gender issue, we are not on the same page. This is a gospel issue. And if you're in prayer, in the word, how do you not love that gospel? How's it not centered in your heart and in your mind? How are you not thinking about it all the time? And then looking at your life and going, all right, Lord, I love this gospel. I think about Jesus every morning when I get up and I go in the closet and I pray with you and I think about Christ and I think about who I am and how I'm wicked without you and how you have covered my sins and paid the price and you, you paid the ransom, verse six. You, you paid for me. That's the gospel. And, and, and you, you did that by submitting to the Father even though you of all people were the least deserving to die for me. And you did it anyway. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the same. I'm going to show the gospel. I'm going to show Christ. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to my husband. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, if my husband doesn't love me right, I'm going to submit him into love. I'm going to submit to him so good that he's going to have no choice but to love me well. Because that's what Christ does. He did that to the Father. Why? So the church would love him well. That leadership from men is to be expressed as prayer corporately with the body. Why? So that the other men have an example. So that the men in the church who aren't leaders would look at the leaders and go, I want to be like that guy. And so the women in the church would look at the leaders and go, I want my husband to be like that guy. And this is why in verses three through six, before Paul talks about church leadership, he's like, first things first, you have the gospel has to be present in your public worship. Has to be. Because if it's not, this whole thing about men and leadership and women's roles and prayer is gonna mean nothing if it's not gospel-centered. So, That leadership for men is expressed publicly and corporately as men lead the body of Christ in prayer. And these men, when they pray, should be doing a particular thing. And Paul says they should be lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
Now, the idea of lifting holy hands is not a command that men should literally be have their hands in the air or in the sky as they pray. He's not emphasizing a particular physical posture of prayer. And we see this in the Old Testament. This is actually a particular thing that in the Old Testament they were to physically, literally do. And if that's because we know that's true, it could be very easy to misinterpret this text and say, well, they did it in the Old Testament, so that's what this means. But the issue is that in the Old Testament, there were a lot of different physical postures for prayer that they were supposed to do. So there's, there's no reason why Paul would single this one out. So what does it mean then? Well, first of all, we've got to understand what holy means. Holy means unpolluted and unstained by evil, which is perfection, right? So it's this, it's this recognition and awareness and reality that I am made holy in Christ, And then my life is a reflection of that holiness. My life is the outpouring of the righteousness of Christ that is in me coming out of my life. So that's what holy means. So what do hands mean? Well, hands symbolize work and movement and activity often attributed to men as they were men were created to perform the more laborious activities in life. Like farming and building and fixing Men have a different kind of calling when it comes to work. When you think about how men and women were created, Adam's job and, and Eve's job and how different they were and how Adam's job was a more laborious work. And so speaking specifically to men, Paul is saying, your hands are a symbol of your life. The activities of life. Holy hands represent a holy life. And this holy life, this is important when it comes to prayer. This holy life that the men of God should be living is lifted up to God as an offering to God presented at his feet when we make our petitions and supplications and intercessions and prayers and thanksgivings. And we see this truth confirmed in James 5.16, which says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So it is not just that, that men should pray, but that in the context of men leading the congregation by subjecting themselves to God in submission as Christ like examples of holy leadership, these male leaders need to be holy. That's a high calling. Because I badly want to interject right there. As I say, these male leaders in the church need to be holy. I want to interject and go, well, you know, not everyone's perfect. And kind of like give you a little leeway. No leeway. You are aware, you are fully aware that no one in this room is perfect yet. But you are already perfected in Christ. Now live it. Men specifically who are going to lead the church. It's not just a request. It is a mandate. It is a command. It is a requirement that they're holy. And you could look at any man, any man in leadership, and you absolutely could find imperfection for sure. And that's why Paul clarifies in chapter three some qualifications. But, and we'll get to that when we get to that. The confirmation of this truth, we see that in chapter 3. How important it is that men of God are, who lead the church specifically, are above reproach. Holy men, that their life, I mean, when, so when they, when, the, when God's church leader prays and he's holy, he fulfills James 5.16, that the righteous person's prayer has great power as it is working. And holiness is the reason that Paul says that as the men lead in prayer, which is Christ-like activity, and it is a representation of Jesus's leadership, that they are to do so without anger or quarreling. Anger is not a sin that only men fall into. Women get angry too, okay? But let's be honest. Anger is a far greater temptation to sin for men. And you could maybe explain why. Certainly because God made us with more testosterone. But you can't blame testosterone 
for why men get angry. It's sin. You blame the man and his sin. And God didn't create testosterone so that men would get angry. That's not the point. God created men with testosterone so they would do what men are supposed to do and what they were created to do. And then with sin entering the picture and at the fall, testosterone and all the positive manliness that's supposed to be expressed gets twisted and putrefied by sin. And now anger's a problem because we get all this energy and all this power and all this testosterone going through our veins and something doesn't go our way and we have an expectation and that expectation doesn't get met and we go, ah! Kick things and break stuff. Which is sin. Quarreling is associated with anger because anger not only leads to quarreling, but quarreling leads to anger. But mostly, anger leads to quarreling. When we talk about church leadership, a lack of relationship restoration between men produces quarreling between those men. If you are not right with a man, well, with anybody, it doesn't matter if you're a man or not, or if it's with a man or not. If you're not right with people, the point is, and we see this all throughout scripture, Jesus commands us in Matthew chapter 5, get right, restore broken relationships so that the anger that comes from that relationship not having met the expectations you desire doesn't lead to your anger and that anger leads to quarreling and you are disqualified for leadership. Instead, chapter three, we'll see these things. Church leaders, elders, overseers must be self-controlled, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And in Titus chapter one, Men, elders, must not be quick-tempered and not violent, but self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So why does a church leader need to match these qualifications? There's many reasons, but I'm going to tell you one. Because from holiness, the man of God, his prayers become effective. His holy life is, as Romans 12, 1 says, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And thus, with a holy and acceptable offering to God, we are met with answered prayers. And the answers to our prayers serve as validation that the male leader praying is a qualified and righteous man faithfully fulfilling his role in church leadership. A sound that sounds like if I do this, God will do this. That's not what that means, though. Why are his prayers answered? It's not because he's holy. You can't just say, oh, I'm holy now. I'm living a holy life. All right, God, I love living for you. I'm totally filled with the Spirit, totally holy in everything that I'm doing in all aspects of my life. I'll take that Porsche now. You said, if I live holy, I get what I want. I'll take that new house. That's not at all what is being taught. God is not saying, do this for me and I'll give you what you want. His prayers are answered because as a holy man, he prays what? God's will. And God always says yes to his will. According to 1 John 5. So, what does this mean to us? I'm going to skip one application point so I can get to the one that matters most. What does this mean to us? We're going to talk about women for the next two weeks at least. Okay? So let me just focus on the men for a minute. Men. Men. Look at me, men. It's time to step up. It is time to step up. I don't care if you're 12, 18, 45, or 110. It's time to step up. Men. Teenagers. Time to step up. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Probably one of my favorite Bible verses. It's quite simple. Act like men. Which 
we infer from 1 Corinthians 16 means this more than anything. Listen, this is what he's really saying. Men, act like Christ. That's the call. And given the context of 1 Timothy, the clear implication of what a Christ-like man acts like is fully and completely dependent on his what? His doctrine. How a man acts, acting like a man, a biblical man, is a man who acts like Christ. It's not about the machoism. That's not manly. Machoism isn't manliness. Manliness is love. That's not fruity. That's not weird. That's not too sensitive. Our culture has tricked us into thinking that that's not manliness. The Bible teaches manliness is Christ. The perfect Christ was the perfect man. The more like him you are, the more like a man you are, men. So act like Christ. I'm not yelling at you. I'm not upset with you. I'm not, I'm not, this has nothing to do with any moment before this moment. This is a call to action. The energy I have right now, the way that I'm talking to you, the elevated voice and all this stuff, I'm sorry, I can't bring it down. I want to, but I can't. The reason is, is because this is a call to your future. It's not about your past. If you haven't done it right, forget about it. You get hung up on the past, you'll never move forward. We're moving forward today. Men, time to step up. Your families need you. The church needs you. Lead your family spiritually. Read the Bible with them. Pray with them. Guide them. Teach them. Discipline your children faithfully and repetitively. And when you do discipline your children, teach them the gospel in it. Uh, son, I'm disciplining you because God commands me to discipline you so I can remove the sin in your life and fill it with righteousness. This is not punishment. God doesn't punish those whom he loves. He disciplines them to make them more righteous. And this is your opportunity, though you just sinned, to become more like Jesus. Preach the gospel to your kids when you discipline them. Preach the gospel to your wife when you meet with her, when you talk with her, when you interact with her, when she's got problems, when she needs a shoulder to cry on. Preach the gospel to them. Or show the gospel to them. Men, it's time to step up. But here's the thing. You're never going to step up if your doctrine is bad. You have to have sound doctrine. Or your, your performance in leading your family will be... Eh. I don't know what word to use. Eh. That's what your leadership in your home will be like. And, and it's not just about your home. It's about every aspect of your life. And, and even not more importantly than the family, but just as importantly as the family, the church. Because what is the church? A family. And what is the church made up of? Families. What is the foundation of the body of Christ? Families. The church can't grow if moms and dads aren't having babies. So families are essential to the growth of the church, which means, dads, you have a big job in front of you. And I want you to just check your heart and mind right now, okay, because I know the temptation. You're thinking maybe, you're thinking one of two things. Maybe you're thinking, oh, man. All right, dude, time to man up. You're right. You're right. I got to go. This is it. Like, I got to be more like Christ. I got to be in the word. I got to be in prayer. I got to leave my family. I got to do these things. Or you're like... Yeah, guys, time to man up. Yeah, good thing I'm already doing it, though. If that's your attitude, let me, newsflash, you're not doing it. Because if you're like Christ, you're humbled even when you're good. So, men, it's time to step up. It's time to learn. It's time to grow. It's time to be challenged. It's time to dig into the word. It's time to get discipled so you can learn how to disciple and disciple someone else and thus fulfill Matthew 28 and make disciples. If we're not, then what's the point? Then we're just, we're just doing church for the sake of doing church. Check in, check out, feel good about myself. That's not Christianity and that's not following Jesus. That's religiosity. That's rote moral goodness without the powerful activity of the Holy Spirit. And it breeds powerless apathy in the body of Christ and in your family. It is not allowed in the church. Which is why I take great pride in God calling me to the ministry and standing before you week after week and saying, I will not relent 
from preaching to you the importance of being in the Word and being in prayer. And I'm going to get on your tail. And I'm going to tell you, you've got to be a Bible study. You've got to come to discipleship. We've got to meet. We've got to pray. We've got to go. We've got to fight. We've got a battle to win. We've got a race to run. And it only ends when you die. And when you die and when it's over, you'll have an eternity to do whatever you want. Because whatever you want will be perfect, so it doesn't matter. But this life is not meant for you to do whatever you want. This life is meant to die to Christ. Men, this church is about you. It is about you. We go nowhere without you. And if you don't come with the other men who are going to grow, you are an anchor slowing us down. It is time to step up. It's time to learn sound doctrine. It's time to go to Bible study. It's time to, it's time to make a difference in your family and in the community and in this church and for the kingdom of God. It is time. There is no more waiting. You are not promised tomorrow. We go now. We go now. I love you too much not to say this. Men, it's time to look at yourself and say, am I qualified to be an elder? Not yet. And if not yet, then what do I need to do? And if you're like, I can't be qualified to be an elder, then it's time to step up and fill your role. Your God-given, gifted role that he has called you to that you have not yet fulfilled because you're not being the man that God has called you to be. It's time to build the biblical theology. It's time to grow in sound doctrine. And men, it's on us, not the women, to initiate Christ-likeness. Let's pray. God, I, I, I stand up here and I preach these things and I, I'm yelling and I'm shouting and I'm saying, hey, man, we got to do this. And I, if I'm honest with, with this church, with these people, if I'm honest with myself, God, you and I both know I'm, I got, I'm probably not doing it that well myself. Help me to be a better example and ignite the power of your spirit in these men. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.